You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. From his first days as Commander-in-Chief, the drone has been President Barack Obama's weapon of choice, used by the military and the CIA to hunt down and kill the people his administration has deemed, through secretive processes without indictment or trial, deserving of execution. There's been intense focus on the technology of remote killing, but that often serves as a surrogate for what should be a broader examination of the state's power over life and death. Drones are a tool, not a policy. The policy is assassination. While every president since Gerald Ford has upheld an executive order banning assassinations by U.S. personnel, Congress has avoided legislating the issue or even defining the word assassination. This has allowed proponents of the drone wars to rebrand assassinations with more palatable characterizations, such as the term du jour, targeted killings. Jeremy Scahill is one of three founding editors of The Intercept. He's an investigative reporter, war correspondent, and author of the international best-selling books Dirty Wars, The War is a Battlefield, and Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army, which won the George Polk Book Award. He won the Lannan Literary Fellowship and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. His new book, co-written with members of the staff of The Intercept, is The Assassination Complex, Inside the Government's Secret Drone Warfare Program. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. My pleasure. This is a really fascinating book. It comes from, uh, some of it comes from previously published uh, documents. Talk about putting together this book, working with The Intercept, working with a, a group of people to create a cohesive view of something that has been utterly invisible to most of us for the past 10 years. Right. Well, you know, when, when um, The Intercept was, was created, for, for people that maybe aren't familiar with our work, it was the product of uh, conversations that Glenn Greenwald, who uh, used to be a, a columnist for The Guardian uh, and was is perhaps most famous for being the main journalist who uh, was uh, the recipient of Edward Snowden's uh, large leak of top-secret documents from the National Security Agency, and then Laura Poitras, who, whose film on Edward Snowden, uh, Citizen Four, uh, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. But the three of us, prior to all of this happening, had been discussing um, starting our own small news organization. And um, and we wanted to self-fund it, and we had an idea of hiring a couple of younger journalists that we could sort of mentor and work with and try to create a sort of newer generation of independent journalists. And uh, while I was in Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro, where Glenn Greenwald lives, uh, meeting with him about this, uh, Glenn got an email from uh, a guy named Trevor Tim, who is a uh, privacy, uh, electronic privacy uh, advocate and activist with uh, Freedom of the Press Foundation. And uh, and and Trevor wrote to Glenn and said, um, you know, have you ever heard of Pierre Omidyar? And uh, Glenn hadn't. And um, he said, you know, well, he was the guy who uh, who started eBay. And um, he's he, he really loves your work. And he's interested in uh, starting a news organization and wants to talk to you. And, you know, Glenn and I'm sitting there in Glenn's compound in, in Rio. He lives at the top of a mountain and he's got, I think it's 13 or 14 dogs now. 
and that's you know it's like canine planet of the apes the dogs are running everywhere and he's got these um there's wild monkeys that are flying around his uh his yard and they they eat bananas and then they throw the peels at the dogs and you know Glenn uh you know you'll sometimes see Glenn on TV wearing uh wearing a suit but if they were to pan down you would notice that he was also in shorts and flip-flops um and it's sort of a surreal scene you know being there in Rio with Glenn Greenwald and he's sitting there on his porch and and his his partner David Miranda had just been detained uh at Heathrow Airport in uh in the UK uh, and was held for upwards of nine hours, most of it without access to legal counsel. And he was targeted by the British authorities and originally was held under um, an anti-terrorism law in the UK uh, because they believe that he was in possession of some of the classified documents that had been given to Glenn and Laura by um, Edward Snowden. And so I'm there in the canine planet of the apes, monkeys throwing banana peels, Glenn in short, sitting on his porch with the most sensitive documents ever to have been leaked in American history. And then we get this email uh, saying that the guy who started eBay, who I think at the time was like the hundred and something richest man in the world, uh, and 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 we had just been talking about starting a news organization and how we were going to fund it, and so within hours, you know, uh, Glenn was in conversation with Pierre, and then ultimately I was talking to uh, Pierre, and he he at the time was contemplating buying the Washington Post, which sold for to Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy, uh, for. $250 million. And Pierre ultimately decided he didn't want to take over a legacy news organization, but wanted to start something new. And um, we had a very chaotic uh, beginning of, of, of what was First Look Media um, that played out in the press. And some of what was reported was true, and some of it was not, and some of it was exaggerated. But it was, you know, it was a messy start to an organization. And what we ended up with and the, the way that The Intercept was created is that Glenn and Laura and I decided that we wanted to have our own small, standalone investigative news organization. And um, and now it is a um, it, it's a philanthropic, philanthropic commitment of Pierre Omidyar. And uh, it really is kind of a blessing to not have to worry about revenue or uh, clickbait, you know, and we're, we don't measure the impact that we're having based on how many people click on our articles or how many how much ad revenue we can generate. Um, and having come out of a community media background, as I did, I, I know that, you know, you, you, you spend a good third of your year begging people for money to be able to do this kind of reporting. And, you know, there's been criticism of, of us and of, of, uh, of us working with, uh, you know, a billionaire. But, uh, none of us would do this if uh, Pierre Omidyar's personal views in any way seeped into our news coverage. So uh, we have been given a guarantee of full autonomy, and um, and that's been respected from the beginning, and there's no indication it's not going to be. So what we, what we tried to do was to uh, pivot uh, off of the kind of reporting that Glenn and Laura were doing on Edward Snowden, the reporting I had been doing in war zones around the world, particularly on the drone program and the assassination program. And um, and about a year into our existence, um, I obtained um, a, uh, a cache of documents related initially to the government's watch listing program, and then eventually um, a whole slew of documents um, about the uh, top secret drone program. This book and what is revealed within it and what was revealed from the documents was so fascinating. And one of the things that... I was, so I was reading the introduction by Edward Snowden. I was had also been reading about his his meeting with uh, Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers and this kind of link that these two men felt. And as I was reading what Snowden wrote, I 
and what you write also, what has happened in the time between Ellsberg and Snowden is that the IT revolution has caused a corresponding revolution in what people can leak, how leaks can be done. It's amazing. Right. And if you recall, you know, when Daniel Ellsberg, who at the time was was working for the RAND Corporation and was directly briefing, um, you know, the Secretary of Defense on the war in Vietnam and uh, he had a, a difficulty at the beginning getting any news organization to actually take seriously the, the the documents that he had in his possession that ultimately became known as the Pentagon Papers. But eventually, they were published, and um, and and really, I think, played a very significant role in bringing the Vietnam War to an end. Um, but Ellsberg then had the full weight of the national security apparatus focused uh, on him. And, you know, of course, his psychiatrist's office was broken into in an attempt to get information that could smear him. Uh, and you, you, you sort of go from that period, which was decades ago, to the present tense. Uh, the government is still doing the equivalent of breaking into the psychiatrist's office. Uh, but instead of going into the file cabinets or physically entering an office, uh, the government is hacking into uh, the communications of journalists and, uh, and whistleblowers or potential uh, whistleblowers. And so, you know, we as journalists uh, in, in, this, in, in the sort of age of, uh, of the all-seeing eye and surveillance have to actually think uh, like spies. And so we're using some of the same tools that intelligence agencies use to secure their communications. And, um, and it's become a necessity of doing this kind of reporting. Uh, the other part of this is that you know, uh, Ellsberg, uh, Ellsberg was portrayed as a criminal and a traitor, uh, and and there were calls for him to be prosecuted for treason. Uh, the same is true of of Edward Snowden. And what's interesting is that we have right now uh, a president in Barack Obama who is a constitutional lawyer by training, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, gained tremendous enthusiastic support from so many liberals across this country. And he is, on the one hand, presiding over a global assassination program that he's seeking to legitimize, something that Cheney and company wouldn't have been able to do among liberals. And, at, and on the other hand, waging a war, an unprecedented war against whistleblowers and prosecuting people under the Espionage Act uh, in a way that pales in comparison to all other presidents uh, since 1917 combined. That's one of the aspects of this book that I think a lot of people who are going to find hard to swallow. And I think it's disturbing and scary. And one of the things that as I was reading this, I was thinking at the beginning, uh, Snowden talks about the difference between leaks. You know, right. who wins from the leaks matters. You, There was a famous leak to a neoconservative site, no blowback whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I think if you if you look at it, um, there, there's sort of two, I think, interesting uh, things to contrast with uh, people like Snowden and Chelsea Manning and 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 the source for the the drone papers. Um, and that is, uh, you know, if you look at David Petraeus, who uh, was providing access to classified documents to his mistress, uh, Paula Broadwell, uh, in in some kind of a strange mission to convince her that he was like, the coolest James Bond superhero in the world, uh, because of course he was, you know, trying to stay in her pants. Uh, and then you look at um, what John Brennan did in the immediate aftermath of the raid on Osama bin Laden's uh, compound that resulted in bin Laden's death, where Brennan uh, leaked to the media um, a whole series of things that were untrue 
about what happened that night in Abbottabad, including that bin Laden had put one of his wives in front of him, that there had been this fierce uh, firefight, uh, the way that bin Laden was killed. And, you know, the, the, the White House later corrected that. But I do think that um, these guys are very sophisticated propagandists, and they knew what they were doing by leaking that version early on, because the corrections are almost never noted. Uh, it's it's the first version of, you know, the first draft of history is often what the you know, journalists will, will run with. And, and then you have Hillary Clinton having a, a private email server in her bathroom. And, and, you know, Bernie Sanders can say, you know, that we don't give a damn about your emails. And, and Hillary can say, oh, well, when Colin Powell was secretary of state, you know, he did the same thing. I mean, first of all, Colin Powell still has an AOL account. Uh, and he was, he was operating in an environment where there wasn't even a fraction of the business done on the Internet that is now done within government. And there is a there there with Hillary Clinton's emails, um, but it is being uh, it's it, it's basically being covered up by the fact that the Republicans are so insanely crazy um, that the actual scandal, which is that Hillary Clinton was uh, receiving classified information uh, on a private email server, and uh, while while she was Secretary of State. Her husband was cutting deals on behalf of the Clinton Global Foundation. There is a serious investigation that needs to be done, but the the Republicans aren't going to do it because it's all a partisan witch hunt against Hillary Clinton. It's not really interested in the facts. The same is true of what happened in Benghazi with Ambassador Stevens being just brutally murdered. Um, There was a context to that that had nothing to do with a movie about the Prophet Muhammad that angered people. There were covert operations that were taking place around Benghazi that the CIA and the Joint Special Operations Command were running, and they killed the wrong people in in some cases and inflamed uh, local tribes. So there was a there 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 is a story to be examined about the conditions that led to Ambassador Stevens being killed, the annex being overrun, the consulate being destroyed. Um, but we can't talk about it because it's it's a it's a carnival of crazy with with uh, the Republicans making about everything except the reasons that we should be examining it. So you look at the official leakers, those who are you know, mishandling classified information, and then you look at what's happened to... One of them gets to be a candidate for president who may well become the next president. The other is a general that always will have an Ivy League uh, you know, lecture position available to him for an obscene amount of money. And then Chelsea Manning's doing 30 years in a military prison. Uh, Edward Snowden is in exile. Uh, Thomas Drake, one of the early NSA whistleblowers, had his career ruined, his reputation smeared, and he now works at an Apple store in in Virginia. Bill Binney had his house raided, another NSA whistleblower. Um, While he was taking a shower, the agents burst into his home. And Drake and Binney both had tried to blow the whistle within the official system. And and the full force of the of, of the NSA came down on their heads. They were punished for internally blowing the whistle. So when Snowden looked at what had happened to them, he he made a plan to go nowhere near their official channels and and decided to try to go somewhere uh, where he could safely leak these documents to uh, journalists. So you know we're, we're, there there's a total double standard, and I think that's what what Snowden was getting at in the foreword of this book uh, in terms of how certain leaks are approached versus others. It's completely upside down, and it speaks too to the power of those who can create narrative and maintain narrative the power of narrative, the appeal of narrative to us as humans, give us something that we can grab onto easily. The more easily, the better. The real stories that, the what, 
Snowden has to say, what Chelsea Manning has to say, what you have to say in this book, those are all much more complex, not so easily grokked as what uh, they give us normally. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, look, every single day in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, uh, on CNN, uh, you have leaks coming from within um, powerful institutions, the White House, the Pentagon, the CIA. And these are officially sanctioned leaks. And sometimes they are intended to uh, misdirect uh, other countries um, or uh, to engage in what's called a limited hangout where they'll um, they'll leak part of a story that reflects poorly on the administration, but they do it uh, to distract from a sort of bigger scandal that's playing out. And that's what I—that's part of what I, I, I see happening, whether intentional or not, with, with the Benghazi situation. Um, if the Republicans are not working for Hillary Clinton in the way they've handled this, then they're getting the raw end of that deal because <laughs> they've actually made it so that you can't really— Benghazi has, has, has become you know, sort of synonymous with you know, crazy town. And it's, oh, the Benghazi truthers and the Benghazi. No, no, no. There's a real issue there. It's just we can't discuss it because, and Hillary should count her blessings that Trey Gowdy and those people are in charge of this. Like the absolute nuttiest people you could ever put in charge of a serious investigation have made it so that she doesn't really, she can just say it's a partisan witch hunt. And she's right because they haven't even examined the real issues. So, you know, Barbara Starr, who is a Pentagon spokesperson that poses as a CNN uh, reporter, uh, almost every day is providing you know, whatever leaks the DOD wants to put out into the world. In fact, I'll tell you a story that I don't know that I've talked about on the, on the air before, but um, years ago when I was working at The Nation magazine, this would have been in 2000, summer of 2011, I had gone to Somalia and uh, in Mogadishu, and I investigated and, and ultimately showed that the CIA had built a secret base uh, in the back corner of Aden Ade Airport. And the CIA, this is under Obama, was helping to facilitate... Um, extraordinary renditions from uh, East Africa, and they were taking them to a secret prison inside of Somalia that was nominally run by Somalia's National Security Agency. But uh, white personnel from the CIA, Americans, were participating in the interrogations of of, uh, of, of prisoners that were snatched on direct orders from uh, the Obama administration at a time when they were denying they were doing all of that. So I had called the CIA for comment when I was finishing that story and had a very long back and forth with them. And they were very concerned that I was going to use the phrase black site, you know, because it's Obama and that I was not, I was going to use the phrase extraordinary rendition. And, you know, we played this sort of chess match that you, you play with them. And, um, and, and so we, we, we wrapped up with them. The thing is going to go to press the next morning. And I, I wake up at, at six in the morning and I watch CNN, Barbara Starr, saying CNN has exclusively learned that the United States uh, is engaged in a partnership with the Somali government to try to extract information from terror suspects. And they say that it has yielded results. What they had done is they had done a front runaround. They they gave the story in a totally spun way to one of their loyal servants in the media as a way of trying to preempt the fact that uh, we were going to be publishing detailed information about a secret prison uh, under the Obama administration that was being run in the air, uh, out of the airport in Mogadishu. And, and, and that happens all the time. We, when, we, when we published the, um, the government's uh, uh, rule book for watchlisting people and, and then followed it up by, by publishing more secret documents about uh, how many people were on these lists, uh, the, um, the U.S. intelligence agencies went to a reporter from the Associated Press. Uh, that we, they had asked us for a certain deadline to get us comment. And we, we allowed them to 
extend the deadline. So let's say it was like one one o'clock in the afternoon was the was the deadline that that we had agreed on. At about eleven thirty, uh, the Associated Press does a report that again was taking the the inf- the the information that we were going to be reporting, but but spinning it in such a way that it made the government look good, and we were able to respond in real time. Uh, to that, and we put our piece out, and it ended up becoming a, a scandal. And you know, the uh, U.S. intelligence officials had to admit that they had, in fact, tried to give it to a journalist they perceived as friendly, so that they could spin the story before we broke it. And and this has happened repeatedly to us at the Intercept. That is so fascinating. That the a battle for the control of narrative. That, I mean, that's the whole. It's the whole point. And you know, the best trial lawyers. You know, I mean, my, my brother is a litigator in Chicago, and. You know, it's it it really doesn't boil down in many cases to the facts. It it boils down to who tells the best story, and the government knows that better than anyone. And that that's why that's why they try to get ahead of of the story. And you know, I mean, part of we're, we're living in this Ritalin society right now, where everything <laughs> has to be distilled to 140 characters, and ideally have a cat picture, you know, attached to it, or a cat GIF, you know, uh, where you know, so that so that. That the people can actually absorb the information, um, but in that in in that sort of milieu, um, we've we've lost a depth to our thinking in this country. And I mean, I love social media. I love Twitter. I'm on it all the time. But I don't write in Twitter. I I write long form investigative journalism because I think I, I think it is important to preserve um, old school muckraking and have editors and fact checkers and provide people with detailed information that's the product of reporters getting their fingernails dirty when they're out in the field doing work. Um, and but but the you know the US government understands uh, the power now of social media and they're very effective at managing it. There, there, I'm sure you read it, but there was a fascinating piece in the New York Times magazine recently about Ben Rhodes, who is one of the the senior national security advisors to uh, President Obama. And I mean he he basically it's it's the equivalent of if you went into a random frat house and pulled the guy away from a beer bong and told him you're you're going to be one of the people that's going to help Obama choose which country to to bomb next. I mean, he, the, the the click of sort of frat boys that Obama surrounded himself with is remarkable. And I encourage your listeners to read this piece on Ben Rhodes in the New York Times Magazine because he sort of gleefully boasts of how they manipulate uh, the media all the time. And he says in it, you know, most of the journalists covering this stuff are 27-year-olds tethered to their desks who've never been anywhere. And we basically can write their stories for them. And um, and I think that's largely true of a lot of what passes as journalism today is people just permanently glued to their computers who who don't know anything about the world and they've never gone out into the field. And so, you know, the frat boys working around Obama can manipulate them the way that they would someone in a game of beer pong at their frat house. <laughs> you know, one of the things I found most disturbing throughout this book was that you were talking about it's a 140-character world. It's a PowerPoint world. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. all of these slides about the assassination policies, how the military is establishing pop-up, pop-up bases in Africa, all of these things are PowerPoint slides, and they're not even very well-designed PowerPoint slides. Right. Well, and in fact, we, you know, one of the th- one of the things that we point out in the book is, uh, and I'm, I'm for for people that aren't sitting in in the studio with us right now, I'm just sort of I'm looking through the books. I want to find the. Uh, the list of all of these terms that that uh, that we extracted from the documents, but one of the things we point out is that some of the slides were um, authored by or, or or created by people who work in the very secretive national security division of the IBM Corporation, 
And and what we were able to find is that some of the phrases that they use, um, you know, like target package, for instance, some of the phrases though that they're using to describe what is really the hunting of human beings have also been used by IBM to describe like widgets being made by other corporate clients. I mean, it's it really is, you know, you know, it's it's cliche to talk about the banality of evil, but you know, when you when you read the, the these documents that we published, keep in mind that what we're really talking about here is a global program of hunting human beings. And and then look at the kind of language that's used. It's as though they're talking about selling a product. And what are the emerging markets for this product? It's it's the emerging kill markets is basically what they're talking about. And it really is kind of chilling, especially because Obama is president and is who he is, that this is how all of this is administered and described. I was fascinated by your look at assassination and, and the idea we've long known that assassinations are illegal, but what you point not out, illegal. Well, that it's it's. I mean, that, but actually, I'm glad is, you bring it up because it's very is, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's what you say. That the the Congress has never gotten around, eh, never quite gotten around to passing any laws. Right. I mean, what? So so. And I, I mean, I know you're familiar with this history, but mm-hmm. maybe for for some of our you know listeners that uh, aren't, um, you know, when the CIA was created in the early 1950s. Uh, one of the first things that the the CIA was known to have done was to or, uh, engineer the coup against Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, the democratically elected president of Guatemala, and then the overthrow of Mossadegh in um, in Iran, uh, and then the backing of death squads and juntas, and there were political assassinations around the world. There were coups. There were death squads. And then you had the in the '60s the political assassinations inside the United States. You had the assassination of Kennedy, both Kennedys, Bobby and and, and John, and then and, and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and uh, you know the Fred Hampton killing, and you know some of those were uh, done by the U.S. government. Some we don't know who, who they were done by. Some were done by law enforcement. But there was just sort of this outbreak of assassinations, and so Congress. Uh, began investigating um, assassinations and um, uh, primarily uh, uh, global, not not in the United States. And um, and basically, when Ford became president, as a way of kind of saying we're doing something about this without actually doing something about it, is they decided to create uh, an executive order. And remember, in the Ford administration, the people that were really running the show were Cheney and Rumsfeld. And they go all the way back to the Ford administration. Rumsfeld was the youngest defense secretary in history and the oldest defense secretary in history. And they came up with this idea that was based on on the Federalist paper on the unitary executive, that that the executive branch really is a dictatorship of uh, foreign and military policy of the United States. And Congress and, and the courts really should have nothing to do with it. And they very passionately embraced that idea. So they had Ford issue an executive order that said the U.S. doesn't engage in political assassination. And uh, and and then Carter updated it when he became president, removed the word political, and then added uh, words to the effect of, uh, you know, American personnel, contractors, and agents of the U.S. will not engage in assassination. He took out the word political and then and, and expanded the scope of it. Congress, though, several Congress people throughout history have tried to legislate this issue. And to define the term assassination, and to say, okay, an executive order is not a law. Uh, you know, Congress didn't debate it. You know, there there wasn't a bill. It didn't go through committee. So let's do this. And the the pushback from the executive, both Democrats and Republicans, has been fierce, and it's been shut down. So what that means is, uh, you know, Obama can say, well, these aren't assassinations; these are targeted killings. 
Um, the, the attempt to kill Gaddafi in 1986 by, by Reagan uh, was not an assassination attempt. It would have been a leadership strike. So they, they, they create these different terms because uh, the, you know, anything but an assassination is what we'll call it. Um, but you know, people think of an assassination as you know somebody you know shoots Martin Luther King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, or 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 JFK in his motorcade, or bumps off someone in a cafe, you know, in Europe with a pistol. What's the difference between all of those things and having a, a, a drone fire a Hellfire missile at someone driving in their car? It's just which weapon they choose. Um, but somehow we've been groomed to believe that if it happens in a distant place and it's done by you know an automated machine or a machine that's controlled remotely from a desert somewhere in the southwest of the U.S., that it's not really assassination. It's 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 war, and and it's not war. In many cases, it 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 has nothing to do with war. This this is a kill your way to victory philosophy that really has been bankrupt from the beginning, um, but we've been groomed to accept it as a necessary way of keeping us free. A lot of the revelations in this book come from yet another a source. Talk about a little bit about that source and what what we got from them in terms of the drone legacy which you write about in this book. Right. Well, I mean the 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 person who provided us with these um documents is a um uh, an incredibly uh, principled and brave person. Um, and and beyond what we've publicly written about the source, we're not going to say anything. Um, but this was a person who worked um, on the assassination program and worked within uh, the drone program and um, and came to a realization that what they were a part of was not only a moral, uh, you know, a, a sort of presenting moral conflicts for them, but um, also was contrary to the stated goal. Of the program, which is to erode or stop terrorism, and uh, and so this person came to a belief that, and I've believed this for some time, that um, we're actually creating more new enemies who are not necessarily terrorists than we are killing actual terrorists. And you know, on paper, the way that uh, President Obama, in particular, has described the standard for killing people sounds reasonable, uh, which is that they present an imminent threat to uh, the U.S. and its people. Um, but then they've redefined the term imminent, uh, and we know that from a, a white paper from the DOJ that was leaked in advance of John Brennan's confirmation as CIA director. They redefined imminent so that even the most barely literate individual uh, would not recognize it as being the definition of imminent, which is basically if you've ever had a thought about anything involving terrorism, you're, you, you represent a continuing and imminent threat. So under that, you can just basically kill anyone you want and say, well, it was an imminent threat. I would love to see evidence of any drone strike that actually stopped an imminent plot to blow up an airplane, kill Americans. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying they've never provided any information, um, but they've killed a tremendous number of people in, in drone strikes. Who are these people? We, we, we know who some of them are, but the vast majority are unknown, and they've been labeled enemies killed in action as part of official policy. And only if somehow someone takes the time to posthumously you know, appeal the, that that conviction, uh, which has, comes with the death penalty of being an enemy, uh, your designation will remain that you were enemy killed in action in perpetuity. It's an inversion of innocent until proven guilty. They are guilty until they're dead, and then they are welcome to try to prove themselves innocent from the afterlife. And uh, one of the things you write, too, uh, an argument that you make again and again, I think is really powerful, is that these strikes work against us in two ways. They create new enemies, but they also 
kill the people who might give us information. You cannot interrogate the dead. Right. Well, and and this is this is where there there I have common ground in in one sense with uh, you know people like Lieutenant General Mike Flynn, who we interviewed for these stories, who uh, is a a major figure in the modern history of U.S. special operations forces. He was. Uh, the the top intelligence official for General Stanley McChrystal when he was head of the Joint Special Operations Command, and and Flynn basically says, you know, that, that drone strikes are destroying our ability to truly disrupt these networks because we can't interrogate uh, the number three, four, or five people because we're just killing them, you know, like mowing the lawn. Um, but Flynn's solution would be to go back to the system of secret prisons and, you know, what they call enhanced interrogation techniques, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, to me, the most sound, I don't think there's any easy fix to, you know, combating terrorism. But I think that a start would be removing this language that we're at war and, and viewing terrorism as a very serious, high-level crime. Uh, and I believe that individuals and nation states have a right to defend themselves, including the United States. But we haven't been engaged in a defensive war in a long, long time. And you know, it's like it's not like the the the, the you know royal mounties are like crossing the border to take our freedom away. I mean, we're talking about people with very limited resources, half a world away, often residing in very rural uh, regions of Pakistan or Yemen, and we're told that this is the greatest external threat facing our country. And it's, it's, it, it just doesn't you know, pass the BS test. And, um, and yet, because the Democrats and Republicans have both spent a lot of capital on this, uh, liberals and conservatives largely have agreed that, that that is the way it is. I think that one of the things that you do in this book so well is uh, show how assassination has become normalized. Mm. And by virtue of putting this distance between us, and and you talk about a lot. One of the key phrases in this book is the tyranny of distance. Right. What do you mean by the tyranny of distance? What do they mean by the tyranny of distance? Right. I mean, this is the, this is a phrase that the military's own internal assessments of the drone program use, and um, ba- basically, what what it means is that if you look at where the U.S. really has been striking. Um, under Obama, outside of uh, you know Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, of course Pakistan is the number one recipient of Hellfire missiles and you know Predator drones and Reaper drones. Um, it, it's it, you know what? Just as a sidebar, it seems like everything is either you know named after a Native American tribe or some really gruesome death merchant. You know the the Predator, the Reaper, and then you have the Apache helicopters and the Tomahawk cruise missiles. I mean, there's something really I think you know, insane about that. That that should really be explored. But that's that's neither here nor there. If in, when you're in a place, a conventional war like Afghanistan, you have military bases and outposts and airfields that you've taken over, and so it's very easy to uh, send a drone, kill someone, circle around, come back. When you though are are in, um, and, th- and that's been true in certain parts of Pakistan. When you start to want to strike in Yemen. You have to take into account where is our closest base that we can, A, covertly and securely house the drones. Um, what is the uh, the actual hover time of these things? Because they, they use fuel and, uh, and they can't stay in the air forever. Um, how many missiles can they carry? What if we miss on the first strike? So what the military means by the tyranny of distance is that if, you're, if your closest base to the very northern tip of Somalia is Djibouti, which is this tiny 
uh, African nation that is of geostrategic importance to the U.S. because of the wars in East Africa. They were they would fly them out of Djibouti, but by the time they would get to where the the target was that they were monitoring, they the the amount of time that they could spend in the air waiting to take a strike was minimal because it would start to run out of fuel and would have to come back. Uh, they also uh, there was a war between and it still is going on between the CIA and the military, where the CIA would sort of bigfoot the military and take drones and allocate them toward Pakistan when the military was trying to hit targets in. Yemen. Some of the drones are only capable of firing one missiles, one missile. Others are capable of firing four missiles. So if you take into account the distance from the bases, the munitions they can carry, and then the fuel issues, the military is basically saying like, you've given us an impossible task. And if you want us to be super accurate, you've got to allow us to fly the drones from a closer distance. So in reality, what's happening is that you know, even if they're not 100% sure that they have a target, if the fuel starts to run down or their authorization to kill someone starts to, you know, wane, uh, the, the time period given by the president, uh, then shots are taken based on bad information. And I think that's where you see a lot of civilians being killed. You quote a rate, a success rate, so to speak, of one in 10. Right. And I mean, this was this is one case study. And it's a you know, I think it's a, it's indicative of 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 how this whole program uh, works. But it was a case study of a high value uh, kill campaign run by uh, special operations forces in Afghanistan, where they have a lot more resources and ability to fly drones than they do in Yemen and Somalia. And, and even with all of the resources, the intelligence assets, the on the ground um, intelligence networks, the complete ownership over the uh, uh, systems of communication in Afghanistan that the NSA has had since uh, the early days of the U.S. going in, uh, nine out of the 10 uh, people that were killed in these strikes by the Special Operations Command, uh, most of them drone strikes, um, were not the intended target of the strike, uh, which, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're all civilians or, you know, we don't know who they are, but they were categorized as enemies killed in action unless proven otherwise. And um, you know, one of the interesting, um, you know, for people who really are studying the kill chain and all of that obsessively, there's a lot of small details that would never grab a headline but are kind of interesting. And I didn't know this, that each drone mission only has one objective, one target. And and that target is identified by all of these selectors from their mobile phones, their SIM cards, their computers, and they're, they, then they're assigned nicknames like Sandbox. So you know, Sandbox is the is the target, and then there's Sandbox 1 is a particular SIM card they use. Sandbox 2 is another SIM card that they use. Sandbox 3 is a handset of a mobile phone that they have. Sandbox you know, 3 is an email address. So the, the people that are sort of looking at the kill terminal, and we, we published, uh, we redacted some of the actual identifiers of the people they were targeting, but we, we published what it looks like in the terminal of people that are actually conducting the kill operations. Um, but what, 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 I, what I think is sort of interesting is that each of these strikes is only intended to kill one person. And when they kill that person, they call it a jackpot. Um, if they if they kill the phone, but they're not sure that they've gotten the right person, they call it a touchdown. If someone is running away from the scene of a strike that didn't kill them, they're called a squirter. You know, they use all of these uh, these terms. Um, but then there's another kind of strike, which which is uh, less common, but um, but really outrageous, and that is uh, signature strikes which is there is no one objective. There is no one target. Um, it is uh, crowd-killing people based on uh, metadata and based on patterns of, of life and who they're communicating with. And when the, the, the CIA conducts these, they're not required um, to prove 
that the individuals are an actual threat, but only that they fit the pattern of people that they believe are terrorists in certain areas of Yemen and Pakistan. And this is a really, uh, even even proponents of the drone program in the Democratic Party in Congress uh, expressed great reservation about Obama's expansion of, of these so-called signature strikes. I think what is extremely chilling to me is this uh, process of watch listing. Mm-hmm. Explain, you got a lot of documents about this, and this is a fairly scary uh, uh, idea. Right. Well, you know, for from um, from the early stages of uh, of of the so-called you know war on terror post nine eleven, the number of people on watch lists has just exploded. Uh, there were prior to nine eleven, there were nineteen people on uh, on 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 the no fly list. One nine, nineteen people, and it's now expanded into the tens of thousands. And um, there are multiple databases. One of them, and again, the, the corporate language is kind of incredible. Uh, the TIDE database, T-I-D-E, um, which is the uh, uh, Terrorist Information Data Mark Environment, <laughs> TIDE database, is over a million um, people. And there are, uh, I forget what the exact number is, but it's, it's, it's like 20-something thousand Americans were, were in this database at the time we published this in uh, 2014. Um, and now I'm sure it's many more. But when you are put into that database, um, sometimes you're put into it because uh, there is actual intelligence indicating that you are um, a, a person involved with terrorist activity or terrorist plotting um, or that you are uh, um, having regular meetings with people that the U.S. is monitoring because they've been involved with previous plots, et cetera. That stuff, I don't have, I don't have much of a problem with that. Um, however, you also can end up with your name in the tied database if your phone number appears in the phone of someone that is three hops away from someone the U.S. is monitoring uh, for potential terrorist activity. And once you're, you are put into that database, uh, you can't appeal it. You don't know that you're in it, but it could have grave consequences for you because there is no level of, of intensity. You are labeled, everyone is labeled a KST a known or suspected terrorist, even if they know and don't suspect that you're a terrorist, um, you know they, they, they don't suspect you're a terrorist and they know that you're not a terrorist, you still are a known or suspected terrorist. And, and even on the level of like a local sheriff, if they pull you over uh, for speeding or for having a taillight out, they will have access to the fact that, that the U.S. intelligence community has labeled the individual they've stopped as a known or suspected terrorist. And it doesn't say on there, well, they're in this because their wife's, friend's, cousin's brother once included them in a group Facebook invitation, and we've now put them on, on the list. As far as the local sheriff is concerned, it could be a suicide bomber. And and particularly for Muslim Americans um, or people that have what the military calls Arab features in these documents, it could be a very dangerous routine traffic stop. Um, but also it can affect your ability to get jobs with the federal government or get security clearance. Dead people can be placed on the list even when they're known to be dead. And the, the ridiculous notion is that the um, uh, terrorists might try to use the name of Osama bin Laden. You know, I mean, what what – Idiot would would like, I'm going to change my name to Osama bin Laden before I go and try to hijack this airplane. But yet it's it's there, and and so you know we've had this explosion of watch listing. But everyone on the kill list uh, is is also in that database, and so 
you know, people who travel a lot to Pakistan on business may end up in that list because they're going to be taken for secondary screening. Uh, they're in the same thing with Ayman al-Zawahri. They're in the same list. You know, they, 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 you're assigned a number that remains with you forever, and there is no way to appeal it. It is, it is, uh, it was ruled unconstitutional by a judge in Oregon as a result of a case brought by the American Civil Liberties Union. But the Obama administration is still insisting that people do not really have the right to know if they are on any of these watch lists, except by trying to fly on an airplane and being denied. You talked about numbers. These predator drones now have a piece of equipment called, uh, God, it's a mythic character. I'm trying to remember. It's uh, Oh, well, well, there's the Gilgamesh? The Gilgamesh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> that, yeah. that pretends to be a cell tower. Right. Well, so that that's a technology that was developed. Um, actually, you know, and what we include in here, too, is the... Um, uh, is our investigation of what are called stingrays. Oh, and, this is and, fascinating and terrorizing. Right. So, uh, in fact, I was uh, um, I was giving a tour of our office in New York to 65 high school freshmen the other day, and we put together this whole presentation for them, and amazingly brilliant kids who are doing coding and interested in privacy and developing apps, et cetera. And as I was, I picked them up in Union Square in, in lower Manhattan. I was walking them over to our office, and as as we were walking over, I noticed a um, a police SUV uh, on the block, and I don't think it had anything to do with our office, but it had a Stingray device on top of it. Um, and what a Stingray is is a uh, it's a platform, a surveillance platform that was originally developed by the CIA and the military and well, and the NSA um, to monitor the uh, cell phone communications of suspected terrorists or narco traffickers and now has trickled down to you know almost you know I mean dozens and dozens of law enforcement agencies across the country uh, and now are in possession of these and and basically what it what, that is a lower end version of what we're going to talk about in a second where it basically can like uh, send out a signal trying to do like a Marco Polo with with one individual cell phone but it can also vacuum up a tremendous amount of data from everyone else's cell phone so they often will use it to see if like a a drug dealer that they're chasing is in a building in one of the housing projects in New York so they'll position a vehicle out it has the little box at the top of the vehicle and they are sucking in all of the metadata and they're looking for one one phone this though in a more sophisticated iteration now is the primary way that the US does what the CIA calls tracking and whacking where they the will dirt box the, yeah they have the dirt boxes that they can put on the bottom of, of, of aircraft they have the Gilgamesh boxes air handler there's multiple platforms for this but but the generic way of describing this is that they've created a technology that mimics a cell phone tower and and what it will do is it will it will tell your phone uh, this is the best signal in town you better connect to this signal so they'll mimic AT&T They'll mimic Verizon, T-Mobile, any of those providers, and they will tell your phone, you really want to be on this because this is the strongest signal we've ever felt. So your phone, you know, you just have it in your pocket. And if you have your, you know, if, you're, if your phone is seeking to connect to a cell phone tower, it will automatically jump onto that network. And then once it's on that network, then they basically have you like on a string where they can follow you around to a fairly sh small circumference. You know, they, they can, they can uh, geolocate you. But also, they can vacuum up your your data with other platforms called you know, Wi-Fi sniffers. And and you know if you go on the BART uh, or or in New York if you go on the subway, there, you you're starting to see these um, uh, kiosks that have video images on them, and they're showing you ads. And sometimes you can look at maps on them. 
Um, in some cities across the country, and I don't know if this is the case in the Bay Area yet, uh, th- those devices contain Wi-Fi sniffers that corporations are using in an effort to gather data on the people that go in and out of particular metro stations so they can target them with advertising. But it's the same platform that the military and the CAA are using to uh, locate and build profiles on terror suspects. Um, you know, when you have your, I mean, I'm, I have an iPhone here that I'm, I'm holding up. When I, uh, I come into your studio here and I have my Wi-Fi on, um, what, what my phone is doing, because I have my Wi-Fi on and I don't have the password to, to the studio that we're in right now, is that my phone is yelling out all of the, the it's, it's screaming out for all of the wireless networks it's ever connected to. So let's say I was at a hotel in Tokyo at one point. I was in at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I was at KPFA in Berkeley, California. I was at Amy Goodman's home, uh, you know, in in Manhattan. All of the networks that I've looked at before, my phone is is screaming out for them, and it just keeps keeps going through them. You can build your own device with fairly limited knowledge that can suck up everyone's data of 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 where they've been before. And so we, we did this as an experiment one, one night, and we went out to a colleague, Josh Bagley, and I. We had this little device we had built. We went to a, uh, a, a sort of social gathering at a bar for a civil liberties legal organization, and we started sucking down everyone's uh, data that was being emitted by their phone. And then we went up to people and told them, uh, oh, you know, you were, you were in this hotel, uh, you know, back in September of 2013. Remember, we met in the <laughs> lobby. And what are you talking about? And eventually we, you know, we did it. We could tell everybody what the name of their iPhone was, what networks they'd been, what cities they'd been in. It's a whole new myth of cold reading. That, right. But the, but, the, but the state has an ability to seize all of that information. And the San Bernardino, you know, controversy uh, after that, that massacre about, you know, Apple needs to let the FBI crack this stuff. Anyone who thinks that the NSA doesn't have an instant ability to already override all of Apple's security it has not been paying attention. The, 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 this is a, is a way of, uh, of the FBI uh, and the U.S. government um, attempting to make it easier for local law enforcement to get into these phones. But the NSA, if they want to get into a phone, they will get into the phone. It, you know, our iPhones are not protected from nation-state-sponsored surveillance. Police, FBI, a little bit more. But NSA level, Chinese intelligence, Russian intelligence, if they want into your phone, they they will get into your phone. One of the things we've seen over history is that any technology that is deployed first in the highest, most top secret military applications seeps down into more common military applications. Then pretty soon it comes stateside. And the most chilling implication of your book as we read it, is that the government can now essentially send a drone missile to any single cell phone number. Right. I mean, what they're doing, it's death by metadata is really what it boils down to. And, um, you know, they, you know, as as the the source of the drone paper said, you know, we weren't really killing people. We were killing their phones, you know, in terms of what the what the actual mission was. And I mean, I, I, you know, drones have been used domestically in the United States uh, in several uh, attempts to capture people that were on the run. Uh, the former Los Angeles police officer uh, that, that went on a spree trying to kill, uh, you know, other police officers a couple of years back, they used a non-weaponized drone in, in, in tracking him. One of the earliest ones was the uh, to go after the um, 
1996 uh, Olympic uh, bomber. Uh, they they used a drone to monitor uh, or to try to find him when he was in you know hiding in the woods. Um, the border patrol is using drones, and I think it's a matter of time before just not that long of a matter of time before a weaponized drone is used in the context of what they call the war on drugs. Uh, and I think that's going to be the next front where we start to see all of this. But on a local level, and you've seen it recently in the Bay Area and elsewhere around the country, the paramilitarization of police and local law enforcement. There is a whole program through the Department of Homeland Security where state and local police forces can apply for grants to purchase used military equipment uh, that had been in Afghanistan or Iraq from the U.S. military. And that's why you see the kinds of scenes that played out in Ferguson where they have bear ca- armed bearcats you know, flowing through the streets, where local police forces all seem to have SWAT-type gear. Um, it's very real to people living in urban communities in this country or to immigrants that are uh, dealing with the border that paramilitarization is very real. Um, and, the, and, and as you say, all of this technology eventually comes home. The war eventually comes home. And I think we're, uh, we're, we're seeing that right now in a very clear way in the, the uh, response to the killing of unarmed uh, you know, black people by police and then the response to the protests. We're seeing it in a visible way, but this has been going on for quite some time. It just brings it to the public light. It's sort of like Trump with fascism. You know, I don't think Trump. Trump did not. You know, Trump. Trump did not invent. You know, fascist sentiment in in American life. He has brought to the forefront how uh, serious of a strand there is in American society of of the open embrace of fascism and bigotry. He didn't create it. He just he just made it more visible um, by running for office in the way that he did. I've been speaking with Jeremy Scahill. His new book is the Assassination Complex. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.